Hi, I'm Christy Lee, the creator of Canadian True Crime. Join me for an immersive deep dive into some of the most thought-provoking true crime cases in Canada. Using facts curated from court documents, inquiry reports, and news archives, I carefully unravel and analyze each case, exposing the pitfalls of the criminal justice system that everyone needs to know about. Find Canadian True Crime wherever you listen to podcasts or visit canadiantruecrime.ca. You're listening to a Frequency Podcast Network production. The days and the weeks after Michael goes missing are intense. The school system has begun distributing posters of the Victoria child, half a million posters province-wide. Head of the Post is getting in on the search for Michael Dunahee. It's agreed to deliver posters of Michael to every household in the Lower Mainland. Brian and Mila Mulrooney were in Victoria a few weeks ago. They promised to do what they could in the disappearance of the four-year-old boy. I'm Laura Palmer, and you are listening to Island Crime Season 3, Missing Michael. Here's how Crystal Dunahy describes the immediate aftermath of her son Michael's disappearance. And it was the, the decision was that he had been abducted. So basically I had to go home because I had Caitlin at home. So I had to I go home and I start trying to, trying to be a mom again, but still being a, a wreck because there's everything else going on around you. Everyone wanting to help to make sure that we ate. So there's always food showing up. People bringing, home, bringing over homemade lasagna or fish. I think salmon was one of the dishes. <laughs> but it was always someone wanting to come and help, asking where my house cleaning products were. It's like, no! <laughs> um, yeah, so it's just, it's amazing how many people want to come out and help and do what they can to support you. I don't know what night it was, but I remember one night, like, crashing on her living room floor with other people just so she wouldn't be alone. Fran Davies used to bowl with Crystal. Her daughter, Felicia, and Michael grew up together. I call her my, uh, well, she's, she's almost like a sister. She was almost like a sister. She was like, she was the little house on the prairie, epitome of a person type thing, if that makes sense to you. She baked, she pre- did preserve, she sewed, like, she was just, she was that type of person. Who do you know that could go to New York City to be on the Geraldo show and wear a dress she made? Crystal. Fran and Crystal are close. They also work together at an insurance company. I worked with Crystal for a short time, and we lived in the same townhouse complex. She used to pick me up, like her and Michael would pick me up for work, because we, Crystal and I would drive in to work together, and she would have to drop Michael off at the babysitters. There was times like when Crystal would be like in bowling tournaments or whatever, or bowling on a Saturday night. Michael would be at my sister's with my daughter and my girlfriend's daughter getting babysat. Here's how Fran remembers Michael. He was like a little old gentleman when he walked. And he was always like the well-behaved child. As soon as Fran learns Michael is missing on Sunday evening, she heads down to help with the search. And the next day... I remember the next day having to go into work because, you know, I worked with Crystal and like a group of the, uh, when they came in, they're like, nope, we're going down. So we all just piled into vehicles and went down there. Fran tries to support her friend Crystal and Bruce. Bruce was a hard nut to crack. 
He's, a, he's don't get me wrong. He's a sweetheart. I, he's a really great man. He has a heart of gold. He would do anything for his family. He, he really started shining through after they had Caitlin, and it was like that was his perfect family. And when Michael disappeared, he did. He had a rough go of it because, like, how could that happen to him? How could God let something like that happen to him? While friends and community rally around Michael's family, the Dunahees must also contend with the police, who need to consider the possibility that Michael was taken by someone close to him. They always look to the family first. Is there marital issues, everything? No. <laughs> no there's nothing to, to reflect otherwise that something awry within the family or anyone that within the family would have done anything. Yeah, they thoroughly investigated the entire family. <laughs> well, so that must have been just awful. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But as I say, it's like part of the course I have to rule everybody out. Yes. Yeah. But that must have been so hard. It was very hard. And I don't know how many different going over things and trying to figure out. It's like, there's nothing within within our immediate family or our close friends that we know like that could have done this. So this is one of those random acts. They saw the opportunity and and acted on it. And then, as months pass, Fran watches as her dear friend tries to carry on. They all started kindergarten and Michael wasn't there and he should have been. They were all going to the same school. And like, I remember when Crystal had to register him for kindergarten. I remember when Crystal got the phone call from family allowance at the time telling her that they had continued her family allowance for him longer than they should have, but none of them in the office had the heart to phone and tell her that. Time passes. The Dunahees move out of the townhouse complex, but Michael's presence remains in the new family home. Then they'd first bought their house that they're in now and they had redone it and all of that. She showed us Michael's room and Michael's room is still like it was for his first birthday after he disappeared. His bed is made, his room is made, you know, up, his name is there, his presence were there. Ahead in this episode, you'll hear from another detective responsible for picking up the file after Don Bland retires. But first, meet Michael's aunt. Uh, my name is Karen Dunahy. I am Michael's um, aunt. Karen Dunahy is the youngest of the three Dunahy children. Her big brother, Bruce, is Michael's dad. Karen has been deeply missing her nephew, Michael, for 30 years. Back before Michael vanishes, Karen describes a close family, complete with regular Sunday dinners together. Michael is her first nephew. He is the first grandchild, and he is immediately beloved. I remember when he was born, I went to the hospital, and um, I remember holding him and looking at him and thinking, Oh my God, this is what love means. Because before that, you know, I was just existing in life. It was just whatever. And he came along and, oh, I get it now. <laughs> this is the meaning of life, holding him. And, and I was just totally deeply in love with him. From the first moment I held him. Karen looks after Michael one day a week. She will go on to look after Michael's sister, Caitlin, too 
and to work in childcare. And now, 30 years later, Karen is a caregiver to Caitlin's child. Here's how she remembers her nephew, Michael. He had the, yeah, he had such an easygoing personality. Um, always, always happy. Yeah, just easygoing, and he just loved everybody. Everybody loved him, and he was always happy and bright, of course. He was funny. He would, um, we used to have, I used to look after him one day a week, and so we would go on trips to, like, the petting zoo, or he'd take a bus ride to a beach, and, you know, something sitting there in his diaper with the glasses on, giving you the cool high fives, or he'd be out in the out petting the dog or brushing the dog for you. Karen helps look after Michael as a baby, as a toddler, and as a little boy. She recalls an even-keeled little guy, not much in the way of tantrums or terrible twos. I remember he came over, He had we had a sleepover at my little basement suite, and I remember us, we were goofing around, and we set the timer so we can take pictures of the two of us together waving at the camera. Um, we, we took a double-decker bus around Victoria one time, we always took like a picnic lunch with us and we went like to Beacon Hill, through Beacon Hill Park to the petting zoo, down to the beach. And he used to love my, my dog loved him and he loved my dog. So she was um, very protective of him. I remember one time we had, a, he was having his nap out in the playpen when he was still just crawling. And my dog was laying right there by the playpen the whole time, refusing to, to standing guard or laying guard on him. And he just, he'd wake up and, see her and then he'd climb out and flop all over her and she just took it. And when Michael's baby sister comes along, Karen remembers how big brother Michael welcomes his new role. They were dressed up for Halloween one time and I was trying to joke with them and say, well, what should we call her? Should we call her a pumpkin? Because I think she had a costume. He goes, no, her name is Caitlin. It's like, <laughs> oh, okay. So he wasn't allowing me to nickname her at all, but he would um, help push her in the stroller. He... He was very attentive to her. Karen's mom, Barbara, passed away in 2019. Barbara Dunahee's obituary reads that she is survived by, among others, her grandson, Michael. Barbara was close to Michael, and his disappearance haunts the rest of her life. Here's how Karen describes that relationship. He used to love helping grandma. My mom was born to be a grandmother, like, with kids, I mean, she loved his kids and everything, but it was like got on her nerves, right? But these grandkids came along and it was like, they helped her bake and they helped her clean and they just, and she was so calm and she just, she was perfect with them. She just like, oh yeah, sure, flowers everywhere, that's okay. Whereas I grew up making a mess, I'm like, ah, ooh, ah, you know. It is Barbara who comes knocking on Karen's door on the afternoon of Sunday, March 24th, to let Karen know Michael is missing. In disbelief, she immediately heads to the park where a search is underway. I'm thinking, okay, well, we'll find him any minute now, right? Because it's been all day. And then the minutes turned into hours and then turned into days, and, and then it never ended. While friends, family, police, and volunteers look in backyards, under decks, in dumpsters for Michael, Karen sits stunned, paralyzed by fear. Her brother, Bruce, is anxiously pacing in the small room where they have gathered together. He can't sit still. I could, I could not go looking. I, was, I would like sat and wait in the, um, 
where we were all sort of gathered where the police were organizing stuff front and because I couldn't bear to go out. I don't know, I just couldn't go out knocking on doors or looking under bushes. And I just couldn't do it. It was making, I, I was, I, I, I just couldn't, the thought of having to look and then be disappointed if I looked and didn't see them. And it killed me. I mean, I couldn't, I didn't, I never went looking. I, re- I got there's all the hints and all the tips and all the clues just they drove me insane I just couldn't think about them because I couldn't allow myself to be hopeful I was pretty much paralyzed with just not knowing what just sitting and waiting I asked Karen what is going through her mind as she sits waiting for news wouldn't say I was praying but just saying this is you know it's got to be this isn't real he's going to be back and somebody's going to find him right he just wandered off right you know Ever thought it was a family member, ever, ever. I know sometimes we think, well, it, he wouldn't, I know my mom, bless her heart, she, he'd never go with a stranger, he'd never go with a stranger, and I'm like, oh. he was only four and a three quarters, it's like, all somebody's gotta say is, hey, do you want some candy, or you wanna come see my puppy, right? Children that age, you can teach them stranger danger, and it's, but, so she would, like, he would never go with a stranger, he must be somebody he knew, and I just kept thinking, like, that's so... I wish that were true, Mom. <laughs> but I never thought it was somebody we knew. I never, I definitely thought, never thought it was anybody in the family. And I didn't think it was anybody we knew. You've heard about the thorough searches and the extreme lengths police went to in order to investigate Michael's case. And yet, I learned it was a decade before police interviewed Karen, Michael's aunt, and one of his main caregivers. And I remember when I was finally interviewed by the police, I remember going like, it's about time. Like, oh, well, you know, you, no, we were sure you were fine. It's like, you didn't even know I existed. So how do you know I didn't have some crazy wacko in my life, right? I was not interviewed for almost, I think it was like the 10th anniversary before I was ever interviewed by the police. And I don't remember where I heard it, but I heard it, somebody say that they didn't even know Bruce had a sister. <laughs> I mean, I, I know I kept to myself and I was a quiet type of person, but I'm thinking, really? Seriously? So, and then somebody had told the police they, that they should look at my oldest brother because it was probably him because he was jealous of Michael. And I'm like, please ask me this. And I said, what the heck are you talking about? It's like, it's because my, my dad had switched his love from his oldest son to his grandson now. And I said, you guys are nuts. It's just so far-fetched. And I mean, luckily I didn't have anybody weird in my, fa- in my life that I know of that might have done this to us, but... Yeah, I was so pissed off that the police had never interviewed me. I mean, I know they questioned Bruce thoroughly. I know they questioned my dad thoroughly. Um, but I think, that, you know, they automatically go to the parent, right? Or the... But it just... It's just what it is. I don't... It, we go back and change it. I mean, it would make a difference, I doubt. But it just always struck me as, like, they were making it up as they went, I guess. Hi, I'm Christy Lee, the creator of Canadian True Crime. Join me for an immersive deep dive into some of the most thought-provoking true crime cases in Canada. 
Using facts curated from court documents, inquiry reports and news archives, I carefully unravel and analyse each case, exposing the pitfalls of the criminal justice system that everyone needs to know about. Find Canadian True Crime wherever you listen to podcasts or visit canadiantruecrime.ca. I'm a retired Sergeant Alan Cochran. Um, I worked for the Victoria Police for 28 years. Al Cochran has been on the job with the Victoria Police for five years by the time Michael disappears in 1991. I played touch football and I had played on that field. Um, I brought my young children to that field. So it did have some meaning to me. He plays touch football. He has also played on the field where Michael disappears. And he has young children. So the case resonates with him immediately on a personal level. But it isn't until later in his career that Al will get a chance to take on the investigation himself. It is Al Cochran who first shares the police in context regarding the period of time when Michael first disappears. Just to give you some context, in 1991, so when Michael disappeared on sort of six months either side of that, we also had four women from the downtown core go missing. These were all street workers. So it was a really busy time. You know, back then, you know, Victoria was known as the newlywed or the nearly dead, but Victoria police, you know, the city of Victoria has always carried one of the highest caseloads per member in the country. So it's a, it's a very, very busy place to work. Al Cochran is hurt on the job. And when he returns to work, he becomes Victoria Police Department's cold case investigator. I had gotten hurt at work and I had had a surgery. And uh, when I came back from that surgery, they created a, a cold case investigator. So then that, the Michael Dunahee case became my responsibility, so I had conduct of it. So I did, my job was to investigate that and, and other cold cases, but obviously the Dunahee file was the, the biggest case. You know, it still is probably the biggest unsolved case, you know, in the country. The cold case work is a dramatic departure from his earlier policing career, but he welcomes the change. I was excited, actually. You know, when you have conduct... Tips come in all the time, and then when the anniversary comes up, there's a flood of tips. So you have to investigate those. But you also have a full-time job. Like Don Bland was a detective in in a, you know in the office. He caught files on a regular basis, and then this was on the side of his desk. So you would have to do it on a part-time basis. For me, I was the first one that since the original investigation that could really dedicate full time to investigating the file. And uh, I enjoyed that type of work. I enjoyed going back and doing review. To me, you know, it was, I really, I, I like that kind of work. Still, it's a far cry from what he had previously been doing. You know, the unit where when police are in trouble, they call to, I did 180 missions in my career and I retired as a team leader. So it was a big switch. Your circumstances change and you know, I had to do the best with what I was able to do. 
One of the first things Al Cochran comes to appreciate is the enormity of Michael's case. The number of tips that are coming in become almost overwhelming. You know, at, at the beginning of the investigation, like, you know, literally hundreds of a detective office of eight, everyone would have been brought in. And then other resources from even other departments, Squimalt, Saanich, sent members to, to work on the file. Still, the former detective sergeant is excited about digging in to the Dunahee file. I inherited a box of tips that had not been investigated. You know, the first thing you do is you go through all those tips, you prioritize them, and then try to investigate them until you can either discount them or put them into a file that need further investigation. I started going through eight file drawers full of tips. One tip could have numerous tips in it, you know, depending on, on what it was. There's always been something about a brown van involved in the file. So there was a brown van tip, which might have 100 tips in it. The Dunahee files are largely paper files. You will remember detectives John Ducker and Don Bland talked about the tip system, generating paper. Paper that now needs to be sifted through years on. Uh, so in 91, we were definitely still in a paper system. We did have access to a DOS system and CPIC, but the uh, computers were just sort of coming into use back then. In 1991, I'm just beginning my journalism career. I'm doing traffic on Vancouver's morning radio show, and I can recall those early computer monitors, black screens, green text, the slow dot matrix printer grinding out copy. You've got mail. That's the kind of technology that would have been available to the original investigators. The Dunahee files are located in a room, a, a locked room, and I'm sitting at a desk in, a, in the detective office, and it's sort of at the end of the hall, and I'm in a, a cubicle shared with another detective. Eventually, I get everything into boxes so that I could have a box at my desk at a time so I could go through with it without having to go back and forth. Al Cochran is going through the thousands of tips files, reports collected by the hundreds of officers who have touched the file before him. See, this is the, the hardest thing in the Dunahee investigation. There is no crime scene. There's a crime area, but there's not a specific scene where you can go to and say, this crime happened exactly here, and now we're going to collect evidence. I don't mean to sound cursed, but there, there's only one Michael Dunahee file in Canada at the time. And, and really in that time frame, North America, because, you know, we connected with all agencies to see if, was there a Clifford Olson? With Michael Dunahee, there's, there's one file. There's nothing specific that you can say, okay, this is our starting point. So really what you have is you have to rely on 
witness accounts, which were pretty minimal, the family accounts of what happened, but there is no specific evidence that you can say, okay, we got a DNA swab or we got this or there, there, there was nothing. But just how does he view Michael's disappearance when he takes a fresh look at the files? The Dunnehys arrive. They arrive with another person in their car that they had picked up, another player from Crystal's team. She ended up passing away of cancer. Even that third person account, other than the original statement uh, that was taken from her, was lost. So you couldn't go back to try to see if you could remember um, or get her, you know, to re-interview, which, you know, was unfortunate because, you know, I'm sure that then he's went heartbreakingly over that they get out of the car, they've got uh, their baby girl putting her in the car seat and Michael asked to go play in the playground and, you know, Crystal, this is the first time they let him go. Bruce goes look for Michael, he's not there, goes around the school, gets Crystal, and then they go looking and then everything stops. The game stops, all the fans, and everybody goes searching. And there's nothing. And here he is describing the window of time when Michael is left alone. The window, taking all the things into account, was really, really small. It wasn't like they left their boy there for an hour or two unattended. It was a, a, a pretty narrow window from the time that they had arrived to when Bruce went to look for Michael. And then he circled around the school uh, to the east, coming around to the north, and then back west to Crystal. And he's got a look on his face, and he says to Crystal, Michael's missing. She has a very specific remark, uh, you know, like, yeah, quit joking. And then, uh, she reads the look on his face and then, boom, it's, it's on. Earlier, when I'm with Bruce and Crystal, they have a brief conversation about whether there ever was any forensic evidence. Cigarette butts, coffee cups, chewing gum, anything at the scene. Something that could prove useful today. I ask Al Cochran what he remembers about actual evidence from the day Michael disappears. Is there any surveillance video, for example, that is helpful? Nothing. Nobody, that wasn't even really on, you know, banks might have had something, you know, because bank robberies were pretty pre prevalent back then before they went to cash machines and, and everything. So, but other than that, in the public, there was nothing. And what of the area where Michael disappears? What do the files reveal about that scene and those who were there at the time? Yeah, everybody that was there was identified and located. And then, you know, so there's Blanchard Elementary School. It has a pretty minimal playground, but across the street on Work Street, there's a bigger park. So, you know, also those people that were in that park were also identified. Back in 1991, that area around the school was known as Blanchard Courts. There was the Blanchard Courts townhouses, which was an, a very active 
area for uh, the Victoria Police at that time. So then all the people who lived in that area also needed to be sort of identified and, you know, of course we're looking for people that might be involved with children, you know, all that kind of investigation. The Blanchard courts are home to a few suspects, but more importantly, there are also witnesses. I think a couple of suspects uh, did come up from the area that were eliminated. Uh, there were some witness statements that, you know, were helpful. There's a brown van. The guy, because it's Sunday morning, his kids are going across the field to go get some eggs and milk for breakfast. And so he's watching them and uh, around the time there's a brown Volkswagen van that's going up the alley behind Quadra that goes between Kings and Hillside. And he specifically remembers it because he had a friend who had a very similar van and he thought that was his friend, but it ended up not being his friend. It ended up, but he, he was, he might have been a mechanic, but he knew the year just by the, how the van looked that was seen in the area at the time. And uh, there's some brown van tips that came up. So that became, you know, a very interesting follow-up. A lot of work was done in that area. And um, it, you know, it, it becomes one of the main focuses that I, I work on. I was able to identify just myself four tips that needed a lot more investigation. The brown van ended up being one of them. Al Cochran is careful as he discusses what he learned during the review of the file. He's been retired since 2013. He doesn't know what happened with the investigation in the years following his retirement. But he does share another promising lead. Uh, there was information that, was, that came from uh, back east uh, where a person and gave specific information about somebody who he thought might be responsible for uh, taking Michael and was supposed to be in the Victoria area or Vancouver Island at the time. So there was a lot of investigation done on that. And then when you're able to go back with a fresh set of eyes, which is why cold case files are important. And if you have people that are interested in that type of work is that you, you can never fault the investigators at the time because they're doing the best that they can with the information that they have and the time that's allocated. And, and Victoria Police never put any restrictions on overtime or how many people are involved. You know, they put 110% in to defining this and um, it, and, and, you know, in solving this, this file in, in the early days, but at, at some time, you know, that, going to get scaled back and uh, so when you go back maybe there was a tip that came in that had potential it got to a certain point but 
maybe the officer got transferred. Like you, you just never know what. So you know, was able to make a, a pitch with the support of my superiors at the time that that we should get some resources and we should look at this file more closely because and and fortunately at the time uh, we were able to do that. So as Detective Sergeant Al Cochran digs into the file, he feels there are potential leads worth looking into. The focus becomes uh, computerizing the, the file paper into a computer so it's searchable because you know when you're going through it manually and you look at tip 120 and then you look at 400 they might not make make I might not make that connection but the computer does and 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 other good suspects came up people who information had come forward um, either mostly through tips where people thought so-and-so could be responsible and then you know we try to take it to the nth degree you know which could be seeing if they'll come in for an interview uh, polygraph i even did polygraphs on people in the dunahee family just to just to eliminate um you know any doubt that might have been there the former detective sergeant describes trying to lay out all of the various connections to michael i mean we had a diagram like that, the, the um, Blanchard Elementary School parking lot was full of cars because there was a game finishing and then there was Crystal's uh, game that was about to start. So there was a lot of people there. So identified every person that was there, identified where every car was parked. So all of those, and at the time, um, the Dunnies were living in a townhouse complex in Victoria West, um, all the people who lived in that, like all of those, all those people are being identified. I lived that file for a long, long time. It's an extremely difficult file. During the time that I was involved in the file, there was numerous polygraphs and then and again, it's it's not an exact science. It's not usable in court, but in an investigation like this, if somebody will commit to doing a polygraph, you, you have to sometimes say, okay, they, they're inconclusive or they're lying, they're inconclusive or they're truthful. And if that comes out as truthful, you, you, you have to at some point be able to say, okay, I've done everything that I can possibly see to either take this investigation further with that person or I've done everything to try to eliminate them to the best of my ability. And, and in a case like this, polygraph has to be at one point. You know, if someone comes as being 100% truthful to the polygraph examiner, you you have to say, okay, I've done everything and they've given me their full cooperation. It's not 100%, but what else can you do, right? And I'm curious, of the suspects, were there people who didn't agree to take that step? There's definitely people in the file that uh, will not take a polygraph for whatever reason. 
So those tips remain open. I certainly found some suspects that I believed um, needed a lot more investigation. And that was still ongoing when I retired. Beyond advancing suspect tips, I ask Al what other kind of work he does on the file during his time as a cold case investigator. You know, on the other side of the park on uh, King, uh, or on work at King's, there was a, a brand new condo building being built on the east side. And, uh, you know, so, you know, a tip came in that maybe Michael had, was, had crawled down there. So back in the day, which is very prevalent in today's news, you know, we did ground penetrating ultrasound in the underground garage, you know, just to try to, to see, could that have been possibly overlooked? You know, that, that was done in a few places, actually. And of course, there are the tips that Michael is still alive that also need to be considered. You know, people, honest, hardworking people who care about this file and have certainly known about it from the beginning and, and are coming forward with just their heartfelt, honest, you know, belief. And then you would go into the background and, uh, you know, I think I could say in all the tips that I looked at, you know, we were able to find records that would prove that that, that wasn't the case, you know, that that wasn't Michael. And you were able to say that that boy was adopted from this province or that province by this couple or, or whatever. But, you know, again, in the thousands of files that were there, I, I couldn't say every one of them was, but because it's still classified as a missing persons case, that, that has to be one of the possible outcomes. It would be the best possible outcome, but there's always, there's always that glimmer of hope, but it's probably on a pretty low percentage. Finding answers for the Dennehys, trying to discover whether Michael is alive or deceased, is what kept Al Cochran motivated throughout his investigation. When I was doing the investigation, that was you know, a really driving factor for me. It was, could I bring a peace of mind for the Dunahee family to know one way or the other? Like, what, what, what happened to their son? It's, it's got to be an incredibly difficult life to live. I still do think about the file. You know, when you invest that much time of your life into something, and you're not able to to bring a conclusion to it. There, you know, I do feel some some definitely some remorse for not being able to bring a conclusion to it. Um, and it's it is something I do think about it. And when the anniversary comes up, or you know, um, anything comes across the news, you know, it it's there. In the episodes ahead, you'll hear about some of the suspects and about how Michael's family fights to keep his memory alive. But there's no doubt missing Michael has forever changed the family and those close to them. Um, the family dinner stopped for the longest time. Christmas, Bruce wouldn't come into the house 
first couple of Christmases, he couldn't even, he never came down to the house because coming into my parents' house and not seeing, it reminded him too much of Michael. So he couldn't even come into the family home anymore. I actually end up, after a couple of years, I end up moving away. I just couldn't be in it. It was, for me, it's just, I needed to get away from my mom's optimism and her hopeful and her talking about it all the time. So I just, I moved up island for a couple of years. And I ran away for a while just to get away from all the direct stuff that was happening. My mom just, she ended up volunteering at the child bind office. She wanted, she needed to be involved in everything. Michael's grandma continues to believe her first grandchild will come home. She wanted to investigate every single tip that came in. I wish I could speak with Michael's grandma, Barbara Dunahee. She passed away in 2019 without getting answers about what happened to her beloved grandson. Here's her daughter, Karen, once again. My mom had amazing faith and somehow she found conviction to, you know, every Christmas she would say, oh, he's going to come home. He'll be home for Christmas. Oh, he'll be home for this holiday. He'll be home for this birthday. And, you know, the, the, the event would come and go, but it's like, oh, he's coming home. I know he's coming home for Christmas. And that used to make me insane. Like, I, I found that hard to be around. Like, I, her unwavering faith in what's going to happen. My dad tended to, I think he, he gave up fishing because that was something he did with Michael. He felt a great loss. He kept busy folding flyers and doing stuff when the search center was open at the Legion. He kept busy wrapping coins from donations and, and stuff like that. But he lost a little bit of spark in his life, I guess, um, and turned to drink more. I mean, he was a drinker before, but him and mom split up for a little while after he went missing, but they realized they, they, they were better together than apart. Um, I guess it was just too hard to be separated. But I mean, I really thought for sure my mom, when she passed, that's the one thing I whispered when she passed. It's like, you know, go be with Michael wherever he is and help us find him. Like, but she hasn't managed that yet. If we could just get that one piece of information that would spark the fire, get us going in that right direction. Here there's a, a very uh, you know, prominent gang that's worldwide. And they say, you know, only two people can keep a secret if one of them's dead. Most crimes like this end up being solved because somebody comes forward with information that ends up being corroborable and that you can you can run on. Even, you know, someone like Clifford Olson, he was looked at by the police. Even a police officer put his name forward and he skated, you know, his name was in the file. But we had very good suspects that we looked at but there wasn't that one spark that said, okay, now, now we've got cooperation of information that we know, 
and we are going in that direction. I'm Laura Palmer. You're listening to Missing Michael, Island Crime, Season 3. You know, podcasts, I think, are valuable tools because they bring a file back to light and then you might spark a group of people, information comes forward, right? People start who have more time than an investigator that's carrying 20 files. I I commend you for the work that you're doing and trying to further this investigation. I think that a lot of good can come from it. I believe in what you're doing. I, I believe you could make a difference because somebody out there has to know something. And at some point, whatever's stopping them from coming forward is going to break down. And now, a request from one of Michael's heroes. Michael Dunahy loved the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Back when Michael was a little guy, loving the magic of the turtles, I had the privilege of being the voice of Michelangelo. I'm Townsend Coleman, a voice actor, and one of the many people who want answers in Michael's case. The Turtles were crime fighters who believed in justice. If you have any information about Michael, please head to michaeldonahy.ca and click on the Report a Tip button. Hey, it's Laura Palmer, host of Island Crime. I'm here to tell you how to get ad-free content and early access to episodes right now. All you need to do is subscribe to Island Crime Plus on Apple Podcasts. When you subscribe, you get to be first to hear new episodes, all ad-free. Pop down into the show notes for a direct link to subscribe. If you like Island Crime, you'll love Island Crime Plus. 